the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. No, I think Tom just wants. Hello. Hi there. Welcome back. Um, good to see you. By the time you hear this, there will be strikes happening and India will be in the midst of a strike. Yes. Well, I have not yet decided if I'm striking. Yeah. That's why I didn't take a, yeah. a position. We had a, we've, we've had a, an interesting chat which we haven't yet resolved which is whether broadcasting constitutes strike breaking or not yeah uh, to be honest I probably won't have time during the strikes to, to record even if even if anyway. we it wasn't it's um, a question you know we don't get paid no we're certainly not sponsored no, no but are we benefiting our employers is this our work it probably is our work it pro- we probably will be benefiting our employers um, I think that yeah, I think that there'll be ways around it. <laughs> how long the strike goes on for. Um, so what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about recommendation letters, reference letters, and that is because it is college admission season in the US, it is university admissions season in the UK. We are both having to write a lot of recommendation letters. We are both having to having to read a lot of recommendation letters. Um and that's what I spent a lot of the last couple of weeks doing and getting increasingly annoyed by the gendered nature of uh, people writing references, you know, uh, describing female students as charming or personable or pleasant or humble or, you know, a huge number of other adjectives, all of which are problematically gendered. I wonder if I've had um, negative reference letters written about me um, because I am not particularly polite um, or charming. The thing is, I don't. I. What What seems to me, and actually, this is sort of in a sense much more insidious, is I don't think most people who write recommendation letters write set out to write negative letters. Yeah. I think most people set out to write positive letters, and unconsciously deploy problematic biases in being positive so the, the the problem isn't even are you likely to be described as polite or not and if you are not polite in a in the expected gendered way then you will be treated worse in a recommendation letter i think the problem is wh- whoever you are and whatever you do your letters are going to be gendered in particular ways that will create particular expectations or assumptions, also about, assumptions me. Ab- about you, both from the on the part of the person who's writing and the person who's reading. Do you see what I mean? Like that. Yeah. And I don't know if that's that. It's better or worse. It's part of me thinks it's more insidious because it it's more infrastructural. I don't think it is referee A looking at you, saying, "Oh, Hannah's not the kind of woman that I expect women to be," and therefore I will write bad things about her. I think it is referee looking at you unconsciously recognizing your gender and going 
well then I clearly need to say charming, polite, pleasant, whatever. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I'm trying to, the, the yeah, yeah. I'm trying to establish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it is more that. And, you know, then the corollary is more likely to describe male students as ambitious and, you know, clever hard-working. and hardworking. And, though hardworking can go either way. Does it? Yeah, I think hardworking, diligent, conscientious, as opposed to clever and ambitious and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, boys are good. Girls try hard. Yeah. Um, I try to, to describe students when I write letters um, mm. in terms of if they're willing to take intellectual risks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I do wonder if that is read mm. on the other end yeah. as different if I'm yeah. describing a boy yeah. or a girl yeah. or a young yeah. man or a young woman. Yeah. I, I, I think the... Um, there, um, and, you know, academics who work on this will be able to give more scientific evidence-based analyses than we will about how recommendation letters are written and how they're perceived. But I guess the if we believe, which we do, that power relations to do with gender, race, sexuality, class, etc., etc., affect our personal and professional relationships. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm calling back to what you correctly identified last time we spoke about the hierarchies that exist within university departments, you know, from undergraduate student, master student, PhD student, postgrad tutor, fixed term associate lecturer through to senior professor, and how those hierarchies are reflected and reinforced by the ways in which we depend on recommendation letters to get everything from a job to a grant to things being published. You know, that. so we are both at stages of our career where we have to write letters for other people and ask other people to write letters for us. So, you know, we are somewhere along, maybe not quite in the middle, but somewhere along a spectrum where we're not quite at the start anymore but we have a long long way to go as it were yes and every time you do that you put yourself in a particular relation of power relative to this other person and either their or your life professional career chances trajectories depend on on that person and the politics of their relationship with you it's quite an uncomfortable position yeah. to be in. Mm. Um, I think some people struggle more yeah. with with having to rely on others, and some yeah. people struggle more with the idea that others rely on you. Um, but um, it is yeah. always yeah. a feeling of, of kind of discomfort. And um, um, the the often because, and I'm sh- you know I'm prepared to believe that a lot of it was is done for you know good important maybe even egalitarian reasons, but so much of the recommendation letter infrastructure and the peer review infrastructure, which is connected to it, uh, so much of it is anonymized. So much of it happens in secret um, that it is, um, it adds to this sense of 
invisible lines of power that determine whether or not you ever had a chance at a job. Uh, so much of it is down to a very sort of, almost a very medieval kind of patronage, right? That that you have, do you have a sponsor who, yeah. is, who looks out for you? And who is that sponsor and how much intellectual, cultural capital do they have? Uh, how much professional capital do they have? And how much of that capital are they willing to share with you? Yeah. Um, and it's a, that is a very uncomfortable thought that you know how who are we what kind of people are we getting into the career and what kind of people are we losing out because they never got the chance yeah and there's the the language question is really interesting as well because there are templates there yeah. are to a certain extent there are formulas for writing mm. Mm. a recommendation letter or to or providing a reference yeah. Um, and so there are there are kind of norms and standards, and mm. they differ based yeah. on the industry, but also within higher education, yeah. they differ based on on the discipline. Yeah. So you know, in English and geography, we have kind of similar, probably mm. similar standards. Mm. But in a physics lab, mm. the standards are quite different. The skills required, the kind of cultural and yeah. social norms of a physics lab, are gendered and mm. racialized and and classicized. Mm in to just as much of an yeah. extent but it, yeah. in different ways and when you come to write a reference mm. letter or read them and mm. evaluate them mm. you you do fall back on a structure and and also the way in which um you know there's been a little bit of conversation on on various social media channels about this um the differences between american recommendation letters and british recommendation yeah, letters yeah there's memes yes. about this it's a, it's funny uh, um you know and you have to be really conscious when you're writing a recommendation letter, whether you're writing one that that is intended for an American university or a British university, or an American employer or a British employer, because you say the same thing to a British employer. That and if you say that to an American employer, there's no way they're ever going to get the job because the average level of uh, praise is so different. You know, so the the, the the typically the British PhD supervisor says, you know, so and so was my student. They were quite good. I might even say they were one of my one of the the better students I've had. And an American supervisor says, you know, this person is the best student anyone's ever had. The best person to have done a PhD ever. They will, you know, their nature papers around the corner. Yeah, and and so on. And. You always find when you're trying to read recommendation letters and decide whether or not to give someone a place, whether to, to give, offer someone an interview for a job or whether to um, offer someone a place to, to read an undergraduate degree or whatever, is how do, you, how do you calibrate this letter relative to other letters that you're reading? Because there's no, there's no scale, there's no quantitative scale to calibrate it against. So you end up looking for things that have got absolutely nothing to do with the individual student or not. So um, I've, I've read letters where, you know, uh, a recommendation letter where, where someone has said words to the effect of this person will has clearly thought a lot about the course they're applying for and they are perfectly suited for the course they're applying for. And I'm read, reading that formulation going, you haven't taken the trouble to adapt this letter to fit the course that this student is applying for. Now, that that fact that they haven't taken the trouble 
has got nothing to do with the merits or otherwise of that student. But when you have 500 recommendation letters to read in two days, it is difficult to always bear that in mind and read through the lines to A, try and figure out what this person is trying to say, but also trying to differentiate between the gaps, the gaps of uh, within a person who's the person who's writing the letter versus the person who's who we are judging. And also, there's probably something too about the kind of um, rhetorical flair and style and skill of the writer. Absolutely. So you end up, you end up in some senses evaluating the person that this candidate has chosen to write their reference yes. rather than anything that this reference is saying about yeah. that person. And, and the biases of the person who's writing. And this is where yeah. the peer review question is really interesting yeah. as well for for because a, a, a big grant, normally yeah. you have to have multiple experts yeah. in the field yeah. write a reference yeah. that, it, that says this person can do this project and this yeah. project is feasible and good for these reasons. Yeah. And the strength of that person's reputation, yes. the respect that that person yes. holds in the yes. field, the recognizability of their name all come into play when your grant application mm. gets evaluated. And that has mm. absolutely nothing mm. to do with the application mm. itself or you. Same when you, you know, as a PhD student, when you're picking an ex examiner. Yes. Part of what you're, you're doing is who's this person's references will be with me probably for the rest of my career what weight will it have yeah and what am i saying about m positioning myself in in within my discipline by picking professor x as opposed to professor y yeah and how will how will that affect whatever i do for the rest of my career yeah um none of which has got anything to do with merit or ability or intellectual risk taking or, or the quality whatever. of your phd yeah um and it's 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 an uncomfortable thought. It's, it feels, you know, kind of like what we were talking about mm. in our previous episode about the hierarchies. It relies very much on very old school, very traditional modes of thinking about authority and expertise and, um, and seniority and wh whose opinion counts. Mm. And... It, it, it is very old-fashioned and traditional and conservative. Mm -hmm. It's one of the elements of our work that is extremely conservative. And, and there, are particular, there are particular moments when it's almost heartbreaking when you are, especially if you are undergraduate admissions, if you're doing undergraduate admissions, i.e. reading applications for students who are applying to study, do an undergraduate degree in, in your university. And... You look at the, the high school, sixth form in Britain, let's say, uh, in, in England certainly, the high school uh, that they've come from, and you read the reference and then you read the personal statement. And it is obvious that they've gone to a school where they've been trained how to write a personal statement and they've been exposed to people who know how to write good recommendation letters. And then you read another application, and it's clear that none of those things are true. You know, I've, people who didn't realize that they shouldn't approach their uh, supervisor for, at their Saturday job, as opposed to a school teacher. Now, that's, that's just something that a person doesn't know. No one's ever told them. 
their school their school has not been set up in order to maximize its students chances to go to university and whatever system however egalitarian a system you try to set up as an individual admissions officer or even as a university as a whole there are these inequalities that you cannot make up for because you know if if i have got student x who's come from a really uh you know posh private school and has got straight a's and has written a brilliant personal statement and has got a glowing reference versus this other student who's maybe got you know a a, a few a's and, and and a few b's and a personal statement where they're desperately trying but they don't know what the form of the thing should look like and a you know seven line reference letter i have the tools i've been given to judge these students mean that i cannot do anything other than reinforce the 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 kind of inequalities that both these students have been facing yeah and and the some of the um certainly there's different types of of anonymity and distance mm. that yes. are imposed in these different yeah. contexts i mean peer review is is so anonymous yes. and reference letters for us are very yeah. anonymous yeah. um but for admissions yeah. admissions context there is the idea that you are admitting the whole student and yeah. so you know there's it's often there's a little bit less in the way of um yeah. of anonymity mm. because it is a different kind of thing yeah. but you have you only have so much information yeah. about the the people that you're talking about mm. and and you are then relying on the system mm. to spit out some sort of you know judgment yeah that the system is in place yeah to tell you what to do yeah yeah but when you come from such a critical background yeah. and you are so critical of how the system operates mm. but you can't not work within it yeah it's a really kind of painful and and powerless feeling mm. Mm. that you have no control over and meanwhile mm. you have other people writing yeah. recommendation yeah. letters for you yeah. the 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 non-standard approaches to anonymization really upset me so i've been i've been both reviewer and reviewee in a situation where i am reviewing someone's work and i know who they are but they don't know who i am and my work is being reviewed by someone and i don't know who they are but it is clear that they know who i am and both of those situations just reinforce the same kind of essential essentialized rather uh uh set of hierarchies that has got nothing to do with intellectual ability uh at all um and the same for for university admissions where you know the universities for understandable reasons and I'm you know in many cases as an admissions officer I'm very very grateful personally speaking that this is the case but universities are not obliged to give any kind of feedback on applications universities are not obliged to give any kind of reasons why you are rejecting somebody and in many cases as i said i'm very grateful because i'm rejecting candidates who are just as good as as someone else and i'm only rejecting them because 
I have X number of places to offer and there is not enough place. Uh, but it is an uncomfortable feeling to know that as an institution, as an individual admissions officer, I know so much about an applicant and I have access to so much of the system, so much institutional knowledge, industry knowledge as it were, and they have so little. Uh, you know, if you if you poll um, a random sample of of high school students about how university admission systems work, they won't know. I think many academics who work in a British university, but haven't worked for admissions, don't know how admissions works. Yeah, and that's a really another really uncomfortable thought. But yeah, that you have. You have quite a bit of power and no one knows how your power works. Yes. And no one... Um, that power is not codified in any way. I think there can never not have be a certain amount of power. The, 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 the only way to do that would be to completely randomise it and universities get no say in who comes in. Yeah. I think that... I, I don't think that's wise, uh, necessarily. But so the universities will have to have the power to say yes and no to students. Yeah. But there is so little transparency in that how how that power works, and there's so little. And I'm not even sure if standardization is the best thing here in in terms of certainly not standardization across disciplines. I think that would be hideous if like you know as many universities do have a centralized place that decides all. Uh, applications without any resort to academics at all. Yeah. That won't help matters. But some kind of transparent codification would probably not be a bad idea. Yeah. Though I have no idea how that would be. How it would work. How I mean, it it would, work. the whole system is designed for hi to be hierarchical and exclusive. Yes. It's designed to as much to let people in as it is to keep people out. And I mean, it would mean completely reorienting and changing the idea of who education is for and what education is designed to do, certainly okay, in the yes. British context. And which, which wouldn't, speaking personally, wouldn't even be so much of an issue for me. What, what I feel most uncomfortable about is that I can't even figure out what that would look like. Yeah. And I think that's a bigger problem, right, that we are so, or certainly I, I as a result, presumably have become so institutionalised that it is difficult to imagine what that other way of doing admissions, promotions, grant applications, publications could look like. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, in the 80s, the mm. anthropologist Paul Rabineau at, mm. at Berkeley wrote a, a, an essay mm. in a, a collected volume about mm. um, how the university works. And he basically yeah. called for an anthropology of... Yeah anthropology as, a, mm. as a, an institutional mm. system mm. that it, meaning anthropology departments mm. the a, anthropology journals universities mm -hmm. that kind of manage an yeah. anthropology department mm. that kind of thing and doing a, an anthropological study of how the institution works it, in order to grasp how certain ideas mm. take hold mm -hmm. um, and, and in particular he was interested in how post-colonial theory mm had managed to become mm. an acceptable, even quite popular,
theoretical position mm. to take mm. given how um, radical post-colonial mm. theory was. Mm -hmm. And his, his idea was that the system itself mm. had devised a set of norms and mm. cultural practices mm -hmm. that had allowed a kind of radical theoretical position and political position to mm. become the way you do things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and had institutionalized it so that it had become normal. And he basically says that the way that you, that we can get at things that seem so given and so embedded and beyond which we can't imagine mm -hmm. is to kind of go back and study it itself, mm -hmm. which would require... Mm -hmm access that we would never get mm. to university mm. systems and databases. Mm. I mean, even if you wanted to do that kind of study, it would be very difficult to get access to the data on, at, on the scale you would need mm -hmm. in order to even begin to imagine. And, and of course, there's, there's absolutely no incentive for the university to do it and quite a lot of disincentive for the university to grant any kind of access. Um, I mean, I guess the idea is thinking about universities in a different way. So imagining, um, and certainly, you know, in the, the U.S. context, yeah. it's far more decentralized. You have the elite yeah. top institutions yeah. that spit out the 1%, their yeah. kids, and the aspiring with lots of social or cultural capital, hmm. those private schools that are concentrated on the coasts. Hmm. Um, and then middle ground... Hmm. You have specialized schools for the arts and yeah. specialized schools for engineering and mathematics, yeah. which are elite in different ways. Yeah. And then you have public institutions mm. and a whole set of systems of, mm. of state-run, government-funded mm. institutions and trade schools and mm. um, institutions that specialize in, in professional degrees, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they are all, they kind of all mix. And mm. the idea in the 60s and 70s was that these kind of public institutions that were more open access, mm -hmm. that were mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. um, that were cheaper, more mm -hmm. affordable, mm -hmm. less reliant on things like legacy admissions, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, mm -hmm. that it would create a, a more socially equal population mm -hmm. and that was the that was the dream for you know the uc system mm -hmm. the california state mm -hmm. school system um suny mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. the state university of mm -hmm. new york they, they were all and the culture and history of those institutions is is, mm -hmm. is one of radical mm -hmm. political change and social change mm -hmm. i mean berkeley is the mm -hmm. the example and it hasn't worked that mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. perhaps because the elite institutions remain mm -hmm. and they remain the standard mm -hmm. for the model hmm. that an organization that produces, you know, socially hmm. progressive or, or politically salient research hmm. has to be elite hmm. in a well, particular way. I mean, while you were describing that, I was thinking of the Indian context where yeah. the, the institutions that are seen as academically elite are all are pretty much all state institutions where fees are non-existent or nominal. Yeah, like UC Berkeley yeah. wasn't over it recently. Yeah. So, like, if you think of uh, the the one that springs immediately to mind is JNU, Jawaharlal University in in Delhi, yeah. uh, where which is a postgraduate university, and pretty much 
anyone from any background can go still just about can go and do do postgraduate work there which is one reason why of course a it has a historically a very pronounced left wing uh presence a left wing orientation and b the current right wing government is so keen to to police it and and and, and ultimately shut it down uh there there was a time not not a very long period of time but there was a time in britain where you could genuinely point to universities as agents of social mobility not perfect by any means not free of hierarchy or any of those things but you could imagine someone coming from state schools particularly underprivileged backgrounds underprivileged state schools with no particular uh, access to resources doing well getting into an elite university and coming out with a degree that afforded them you know intellectual cultural and and ultimately economic capital um but i guess the question the is came. the fees came but also british universities have always been limited and part of this is the the free thing yeah. because it is free and state yeah. run and india is the, the okay. a similar context you have to perform at such a high yes. level yes in the ways that the system prescribes for yes. you yes in order to be allowed access yes so of course traditionally right in the elite institutions in the US are still yeah. you, you know the, some people perform at that high level and yeah. and get in yeah and in in some cases are able to pass for upper yeah. class yeah. or are able to kind of manage by yeah. certainly yeah. lots of students of color yeah. code yeah. switch and find that very difficult and and you know mm-hmm. perfect the process yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing but it all relies on and in the british context still not everyone gets to go no. only yes. some get to go yes. france is the same yeah. you know a, yeah. an, a, a very high quality higher education yeah. system india yeah. is the same yes. only the very top get yeah. to go yes. and it's the fact that it's the education isn't available yeah. to everyone yeah. of all academic abilities that is I think where the elite comes in yeah. that it's not necessarily you can change that you can change what elite means it means ridiculously clever hard working yeah. you know and an asset to a a really complicated yeah. you know yeah. theory seminar yeah. or it means super rich yeah. and economically and politically yeah. powerful yeah. yeah in the government or whatever yeah, it is yeah. but both of those things are elite yeah and it means that they are not the, the place itself isn't accessible mm. to to everyone and yeah. you can you, you know you can in- introduce title 9 for example yeah. or you can introduce um anti-discrimination like yeah. in the United States yeah. where you have affirmative action oh, and yeah. and it, in in the US those those programs were successful for mm. some yeah. but not all yeah and were easily dis- have been easily dismantled in many mm. in many ways mm. because you know the right wing can turn yeah. and say well look it doesn't work yeah. you know it, it it hasn't uplifted the whole country yeah, 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 whatever yeah, you know yeah, yeah. spurious nonsense yeah. that they say and so it it's kind of this question of access and, and elitism in terms mm. of is it for everyone or is mm. it for some mm. or is it for a very small select mm. group mm. you can change the definition of elite but it is still mm. inaccessible and so for you you kind of you know admissions officers now sit in this strange position mm. where there is both of the both of these things are true there's a yeah. desire to open up access mm. 
and there is also the weight of tradition yeah. and the way that things have always yes. been done and yeah. that that has been institutionalized. Yeah. But ultimately, neither of those two systems yeah. allows for yeah. what I think I would like to see, yeah. which is that education is yeah. more available yeah. and and more informal yeah. and um, more accessible yeah. outside of institutions. Yes. I, I think I think that's very true. I think the other thing that has that has hampered this, certainly in the British context uh, and perhaps in the Indian context as well, is a this firstly the separation of academic education and vocational education. Yeah. And then describing the academic education as elite. Yeah. In other words, wh- why why if I am a, a fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old boy, and I have a particular aptitude to study English literature or maths or classics or whatever, and I end up going to an academic institution. Why does that, in and of itself, make me more elite than some than if I had a particular aptitude for plumbing or a particular aptitude Carpentry. for yeah, you know, like the or or, or even engineering. Let's yeah. face it, you know, the the kind of vocational education that doesn't come with the stamp of elite academia uh, and is therefore in many cases so undervalued that routes to upward social mobility utilizing those skills I'm thinking particularly of the apprenticeship schemes in Britain that Thatcher famously closed down um, what what has happened to that way of looking at the world that vocational skills are important and are valued and need to be given similar kinds of institutional support as academic education does. I mean, I wonder if it goes back to kind of the, the question around trades and, mm. and labor and the, the relationship between, you know, academic institutions traditionally were yeah. spitting out the management classes yeah. and yeah. vocational schools traditionally yeah. were spitting out yes. the trade union yes. membership. Yeah. It's, it's class. And in, in, I mean, in the U.S. context, class looks different. Yeah. We definitely have a class system. It yeah. functions. Yeah. It functions in a different way. Um, but th- there is a kind of um, rootedness or embeddedness about hmm. class in the kind of structure. And hmm. you kind of see that in, in rec- recommendation letters you as well. Absolutely. Part of it is, is you know, if a, a student who is, is, you know, trained up to their eyeballs in um, being able to perform perform university student very well. You see this in tutorials every, I see it every every day, almost every year. You, see it, you pick a, uh, a, start a new tutorial, set, like a new session, and you've got students coming in. And the way they, some students feel comfortable, you know, in our, my university, uh, we do tutorials in our offices. My office is full of books, uh, because that's where I keep many of my books. And you see students coming in, and some students are immediately comfortable in sitting in a room full of books and talking about a play, you know, talking about Shakespeare that they've just read. And other students are figuring out how to do it. And those differences are only partly about, you know, any kind of natural skill or ability or affinity to to read English literature, and largely about what kind of school have you come from, you know. 
Did you have access to books as a school? Did you have as a kid? Did you have books at home? Did you go to a small, enough, go school to a small enough school where your exactly. teachers knew your name? Exactly. Um, you know, the, the number of times I've read recommendation letters uh, recently where the writer has not taken enough care to spell the student's name correctly, and only some of his that to do is is to do with race. You know, I, I'm I'm very used to people misspelling my name, but even more familiar names. You can't see me use scare quotes, but I'm using a scare quote. More, more familiar British names, as it were. People misspell all the time, you know, like spelling Claire with an I or not with an I, for example. Um, and you see effects of this on recommendation letters all the time. And partly it is, you know, if you are a you know, head teacher in a, a school of, of a thousand and you have you know, five days to write 200 recommendation letters and you're just copying and pasting because that's all you have time to do. You don't get to know your students. You don't get to figure it out, figure out how to make the person's the, the references more personal and uh, directed. And you don't have the time to teach each student how to write a personal statement. Yeah, and the question becomes, do those student, are those students less deserving of the education that they're applying for and have yes. expressed yeah. a desire to have. Yes. And, you know, we t you know, academics often talk about, you know, it's really valuable to have, you know, diverse voices in your class. And, and obviously, we you know, everybody likes to have students from all backgrounds and da da da, -da. Mm. But we all still operate under the assumption that you have to, you have to be something in order to get in. Yeah. And that that something isn't something that everyone is. Yeah. And this has always been my kind of, yeah. the hang up I have about what I've chosen to do, yeah. which is that I feel like anyone who wants it should be able to have access to what I have had access mm. to mm. at whatever point in their lives they want mm. for however long they want it. Mm. And you have to completely deinstitutionalize it, which of course is me writing myself out of a job. Mm. But the, mm. To a certain extent, you, mm. the system is is in place, mm. and mm. whether or not a student can can learn to perform, whether or not a, a student is give, been given lots of training, whether or not a student is kind of given a lucky break just because yeah. they've happened to be in the right place at the right time, or they apply to the right institution that's mm. got clearing spaces open and lets them mm. in, mm. like just, however it is that they get in. Mm. The, the fact of them getting in marks them as elite mm. in some way mm. and doesn't necessarily do anything to undermine the system that leaves you banging your head against a wall. It, it can't because individual students will always have to fit the system. The system will never fit change to fit the individual student. Um, the question then arises is how do how do how can we change systems? And I think we go back to what we were discussing last time. You know, you need political movements. Yeah. Uh, you need political movements that uh, take place within and outside institutions um, in order to fundamentally rewrite social hierarchies. Because you know, the I intellectually, politically, personally, I am trained almost to spot hierarchies and I think we share the same kind of uh, 
ambiguous love-hate relationship with the 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 systems where we found ourselves, the systems within which we work. I guess I'm very conscious of the fact that. Um, so you know, there's, there's a there's a recent spate of people writing very emotionally writing blogs about either they've they've realized they're not going to get an academic job or they've realized academia is not for them and they've left and gone and done something else. Yeah. And everyone has to decide for themselves. And of course, everyone has is has the perfect right to do that. But the idea that those other places you go to are any different in terms of hierarchies, I think would be to underestimate the problem. Yeah. Right? So universities are spaces of hierarchies. Of course they are. So are hospitals. So are churches. So are McDonald's restaurants. Yeah, schools. Schools. You know, all of these spaces. And and I guess the begin the, the process of beginning is to lose the romanticized ideas we might have had about universities being the kind of egalitarian spaces because of course they never were well they're some of the most yes um conservative yes but i guess what i'm trying to say is the the moments when universities were in in different periods and different places universities were agents of social mobility They, they were that without losing any of their conservativeness yeah, or they yeah. were they were new. They had just been created, yeah. Yeah. or they were subject to political movement. Yes. So affirmative yes. action, yes. Title IX, yes. they were all all parts yes. of wider political yeah. movements yeah. about representation yeah. Yeah. and access yeah. that were they were legislated. Yeah, and and they have even when they've survived, and you know, let's say the the affirmative action program in India has survived. And they, it has done a lot of good work, but those legislative programs will never be able to transform the hierarchies of the institution. They'll reform it, they'll ameliorate it, but on their own, they can't change the structures. Well, yeah, well, they, they they change the language of yes. of of hierarchies. Yeah, it just yeah. It rearranges people yes. within the categories. Yes. It doesn't do yes. anything to yeah. undermine the categories. Yes. On that cheery note. Yay. <laughs> um, thanks a lot for listening. Uh, we will see you next week. And, yeah, let us know what you think. And see you soon. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.